So the question is, are we overthinking this? Is it, is it not simply that Jesus is saying the, highest, the best way to flourish as a human is to recognise that you can't be who the Greek world would call you to be and have to acknowledge your inability? Yes and no. I think that is definitely part of it. But I think this concept of wholeness, which I want to talk about a bit more, is, is, is a big part of it too. That there is an integrity in the literal sense of becoming an integer, becoming a whole, that is also central to human flourishing. So I think there is a weakness and there's a throwing yourself on the mercy of God and being poor in spirit, undoubtedly. That's what the Beatitudes are calling for. But there is also a consistency, we might say, between the public and private, the perception and the reality of life that cares less about the praise of men and more about the praise of God and that is joined up and consistent with itself which is also at the heart of it, and that is what I think Pennington means by makariosness through teleosity. And the two, of course, are connected, aren't they? That people who are genuinely, people of genuine integrity, do admit weakness all the time, and do lean into it and look for help with it. So, I, in that case, it may be another way of saying the same thing. But yes, I don't think it's just being set up against the Greeks, though. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the question is, is the fact that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, should that not kind of fence in the, the parameters of what we think the sermon is? Because he's not talking about the human race in general, he's talking about his disciples, that's, that's what you mean? I think there is a slightly weird book ending of the Sermon on the Mount, which is that it starts by his disciples gathering to him, and it ends with crowds leaving, walking down the mountain with him, and it never tells us when the crowd rocked up. So as in at the beginning, you think there's only 13 of them, and then at the end of it, you think there's thousands, the kind of size of crowd who might have been fed on the mountainside kind of thing. And we don't know where it comes in. So I would, at that point, I think I would go, there is somewhere, there is a transition here. And I think, it, of course, the point being that it is intended to be a little picture of how the teaching to the church will end up in impacting the world. So I don't think we can limit the audience in that way because the sermon you know, begins with small and ends with very large. And I think you end up, great crowds followed him. You think, okay, so that's also a little picture of what happens with Jesus' teaching in general, isn't it? A little bit of, you know, leaven, and then by the end, the whole lump, the little mustard seed, now the whole tree. So in some ways, even the, the crowd listening to him in the Sermon on the Mount reflects that dynamic of this teaching is not only going to leaven the people immediately around it, it's going to shape everyone. So I, do, I personally do think there's a bigger audience. Even Matthew 10, don't go except to Israel, Matthew 28, now go into the whole world. Matthew keeps doing this, going, I'm talking to you, but you guys are eventually going to talk to them. So I've got to talk to you mindful of that, I think is a big part of it, actually. Yeah. How, how much is it worth noting as well that this is wisdom just appear up nowhere? We've already got like that understanding of the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord, the antithesis, the fool says in that heart, there is no God. And there is like a worldly wisdom which Jesus is speaking into and against. So yeah. all the positive statements he makes, we can think of, well, well, how does the world perceive this and understand that, understand this? He says, it's okay for you to be hungry, thirsty, it's okay for you to mourn. To be truly human includes mourning, thirsty, yeah. and hungry. Because God, 
you like, like make sense of that great world doesn't have that. The fool says there's no God. The world says for you to be truly human or flourish, you can't lose anything, you can't want for anything, you can't be in need. You've got to be self-sufficient, you've got to be loved by everyone. You've got to be a conqueror and not yeah. a And so Jesus is like being really explicit in the face of you have heard it said. Yeah. To, to love your neighbours, you've got to hate your enemies. But that's a foolish, no God way. To yes, think yes. This. Here I am, God with you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. I absolutely agree. And, and I think, in, in a way, he's teaching the new ethic more as a wisdom teacher than as a lawgiver, because that is the way to live. Although somebody made the point earlier, there is plenty of that in the law as well. But yeah, that is exactly. And somebody mentioned who was quoting Brian Rosner earlier, because that's what he does. Of course, as he says, this is what Paul does. With the he takes. He takes law and then effectively re, re brings out law as wisdom. He might even do it in that very book, um, and that, that effectively that's how law should be repurposed for living the Christian life is to see it as wisdom. And I think that is much of what is happening in the, in the sermon. Yeah. So uh, I'm just going to keep moving because otherwise we, I, I know there might be others as well. But um, unless I've misrepresented what you were saying about Brian Rosner or Ryan Gosling, whoever it was. Um, so. This is, um, oh no, what's happened to my triangle? It is there. It's, that's weird. Every other page in this presentation. How the heck has that happened? I, I know I can see it's in the Law and Prophets. But what, as in on my paper, it says, it does, is that what you've got? How is that? So that computer has done something weird to my triangle. My apologies. Um, but anyway, although I am going to blame the computer, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so imagine if you've got the, the triangle is intended to be much larger and shaped like the mountain of the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, that is a real bummer because that looks stupid. Um, <laughs> is it editable from there? Is it something you could... They're on it. Okay. So we'll change the, the size and dimensions of the triangle. Um, but the Sermon on the Mount, so this is, this is me, uh, based on, again, drawn a lot from Jonathan Pennington, but trying to bring it together with a bunch of other stuff, some stuff that Hauerwas does. Um, and, and we're going to talk about the, the practical devotional pastoral implications on the next page as well. But uh, what we're dealing with, I think, is as a, very, a very clear, you know, this is, this is in fact the diagram that got my our executive pastor say to me, you just turn things into shapes. That's all you do. Because it is just basically a giant sort of shape of the Sermon on the Mount. But I think it really helps because it is triangle shaped that the, the Sermon on the Mount begins and ends with, you have ascending and sitting, and then you have descending and acting at the end. So it begins by Jesus going up a mountain and ends by him coming down a mountain. And then the next, the next bit of the chiasm is that you have the Beatitudes and the salt and light on righteousness and flourishing. This is who you are, and this is how you're called to be. And then the bit before the ending is the two ways, really, the two paths, two trees, two kinds of clothes, two kinds of builders. It's a classic telling of the two ways four times over with four different parables. Then you have this reference to law and prophets on both sides. So chapter 5, 17 to 20, don't think I've come to abolish, I've come to fulfill. And then 7.12, on this hang all the law and prophets. So this is a, it's a pretty standard observation people make when they're commenting on the sermon. They're like, there you go. So you've got, in the middle, you've got this. You've got the law and the prophets book ending it. And then you've got the going up and coming down. Um, 
And then the major blocks of teaching material we often think of are the you have heard but I say, and the when you do this, which is the top, the middle three, uh, you know, when you do spiritual practices, this is how, and then don't store up, don't be anxious, don't judge, don't give like this. And so relationships, and the you have heard that I, but I say, relationship between righteousness and the Torah, and then don't store up or be anxious, or judge or give is righteousness in the world. And then in the middle of these three, you know, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. And in that structure, obviously if you buy that structure, and I, I think it's, obviously I would say this, but I think it's pretty convincing. I, I, when I first saw it, I thought, yeah, that, that does look like, that's a pretty accurate reading of what the sermon is. That really puts the Lord's Prayer in the centre. Um, not therefore to say, oh, because it's in the centre, it's the only thing that matters or the most important thing, but I do think it's deliberately centred in Matthew's presentation of the sermon. And I think within it, you can then go deeper into even the centre of the sermon because I think the sermon effectively has your sort of, you know, the, 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 the opening petition, uh, yeah, the opening address, our Father who is in heaven, but then it has sort of three requests and then it says on earth as in heaven and then it has three more requests down the other side. So um, our Father is in heaven, you don't need to recite it, I'm sure, but our Father in heaven and then he's got... But again, in the way we read it, it is hallowed be your name because of the arcane English. But in the way it's written in, in Greek and I presume taught in Aramaic, it is holy or hallowed be the name of you. May the, let the kingdom come of you. Let the will be done of you on earth as in heaven. As if that's like a sort of all three, that relates to all three of the previous clauses, not just the last one. But the way we do it in English in the sort of stylized King Jamesy way is hallowed be thy name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As if the on earth as in heaven only applies to the fourth phrase. But I actually think it matters quite a lot to say that's not the case. It's, no, it's hallowed be the name of you. May the kingdom come of you. May the will be done of you on earth as in heaven. That's a summary. And of course, if that's true, and then you've got the give us our daily bread, forgive us our sins as we forgive, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us. If the Lord's prayer is comprised of seven things like that, with the middle one being on earth as in heaven and the Lord's Prayer is the, the centre of the triangle in the Sermon on the Mount, you, you could, and in fact I have and, and would, suggest that you actually make on earth as in heaven is the very centre of the centre of the centre. If you see what I mean. So you, you, when I taught on this, and I, this is one of the few times I've actually put one of these up on a Sunday, but I did, and not all of this, don't worry, Macariusnos through tele, teleosity was not on the screen at the time. But I said actually the Lord's Prayer has got this triangle shape, but within... The, the triangle, yeah, and it appeared, as I said, triangle shape. Can we please give a big round of applause for Joshua and Tex? That's very, that's not a big round of applause. That's better, thank you. The previous, the previous was a ripple. I think there's a, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a ripple and a round, and that was a round. Thank you very much, guys. Really helpful. Um, so what I did was, if you imagine a, a, a sort of sub-triangle above where it says Macarius Nestrutelioste, like a, a little triangle within the bigger one, and then I sort of blew that out and said, even the Lord's Prayer is of the same thing. It's going up, you know, our Father in heaven, on earth is in heaven, duh, duh, duh. And in a sense saying that the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, now I don't want to overplay this, um, and I'm sure there'll be you know, lots of people who get very excited about on earth as in heaven as a sort of the centre to everything, but I do think there is a sense to which that is at the, the central phrase and the central prayer at the centre of the Jesus' central block of teaching. I, I think that's pretty, pretty great. And um, in fact, yeah, the Theopolis books that Lightheart wrote on um, 
just sort of trying to give a theology, they actually just called on earth as in heaven, like a theological vision for their entire ministry, that that is basically the heart of what Christians are here to see and hope for and pray for and live, live out. And so I find that really, really compelling as well as also got, it feels like it's got quite a lot of, I was going to say pastoral payoff, almost like visionary payoff, actually, that that is, you know, it's not the only way of saying the purpose of the church, but I think it's, it's not a bad place to start. Um, so that's a, a, a big, this is where chiasms become useful, um, or occasionally. Um, I, I find often they're just a little nauseating, and particularly because there are some interpreters who don't seem to be able to talk about anything without saying, it's a chiasm, and you're always like, yeah, so what? Whereas in this case, I think it really, it really is, and has got quite a lot of, I think, quite a lot of payoff. Um, and then there's a, you know, there's a, a few sort of bits and pieces to, to add to that. So you come down to the bottom left, ascending and sitting. So obviously the, the, Jesus ascends the mountain and the people come up towards him to learn from him. And there is something of the Isaiah too. The, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains and the people will stream up the mountain and they will come to be taught God's law. That there is something of that taking place, I think, in, this, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and at the end, as he descends and acts, I just like that idea that there are, you know, there's no written tablets uh, the, when he comes down the mountain. There's no, where are the tablets of stone? There is simply the only thing, the, the law in, in, in physical form is not the tablets, it's actually the lawgiver himself, the word ready to be broken. As he descends, he effectively is that which is going to be broken into pieces before the idolatrous people. Um, but you have the Beatitudes and the Salt Light. You've got Jesus, of course. Is, it's not just that Jesus is teaching you should be poor in spirit, you should be meek, you should be... But Jesus is poor in spirit. Jesus is humble and gentle and lowly. Jesus does mourn. He literally cries over Jerusalem in this gospel and not in all of them. He is pure in heart. He is merciful. He does make peace. He is persecuted. He takes the narrow way. He bears good fruit. He builds on the wood. All of those things we, we know in outline, but I think when you see all of his ethical teaching is not just being taught, it's then in the rest of the gospel being embodied. And often quite specifically, so you could go through the Beatitudes one at a time and say, here's where Jesus does all nine of those things. The law and the prophets. Again, we've got to see the idea of I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. People get quite excited about that because of the, the question. Actually, back to, again to Ryan Gosling and his questions about um, Paul and the law. Because actually, what do you mean by fulfill the law? But actually, this is not the first time that Matthew has talked about fulfilling at all. Matthew's been talking about fulfilling for ages. He's, this was done to fulfill. This was done to fulfill. He just keeps saying this is filling up the Old Testament. So by the time Jesus says in chapter 5, I've come to fulfill, it's the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's the eighth time that God has, that Jesus has been said to be fulfilling something. He is completing all that God has done. And then I have a little cloud off to the side there. Compare 7, 2 to 6 with Proverbs 26, 4 to 5. Just throw, do you want to turn to chapter 7? Um, just the, I've mentioned this already, the, uh, the slightly sort of mysterious which way are we going with this stuff? But yeah, this is another wisdom literature thing. So Proverbs 26, 4 to 5, if you teach on contradictions on the Bible, it's always my favorite one to go to because it's the most explicit contradiction in the Bible and by far the most deliberate. As in, it is very, very obviously a direct, literal direct contradiction in consecutive verses that is very obviously intentional on the part of the author. So you can, sometimes you can deliberately contradict yourself, just like I did earlier when I said yes and no to Rich. And people do that all the time. 
Because, and of course I'm contradicting myself, because I'm trying to get you to think about what, in what sense yes, and in what sense no. And of course the classic biblical example is, do you or do you not answer a fool according to his folly? And that's a wisdom trope, that kind of thing. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, because. Answer a fool according to his folly, because. So you go, it's a contradiction. You think, well, of course it is. It's, there. it's a contradiction designed with a purpose to make you think, oh, in that sense, yes. In that sense, no. And anyone who's ever been on Twitter knows you have to often wrestle with a question, do I or do I not answer a fool according to his folly? Because if I do, then I might become like him. But if I don't, then he might be wise in his own eyes. So which is it? And the answer is... Yes. Um, and you have to think that through, right? And so I, I use that as an example because in many ways I think that is what's happening in this otherwise quite puzzling section on judging, right? One of them, D.A. Carson says that what it, John 3.16 used to be the most famous verse in the Bible, but now the most famous verse in the Bible is, do not judge lest you be judged, which I don't know if that's true, but I thought it was quite an interesting comment. But this is what Jesus, of course, says. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in yours? Well, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, what your eye, while there's the log in yours? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's interesting that the, the end of that little parable, I suppose, does, does lead the individual helping his brother get the speck out. So it doesn't mean, oh no, just let anyone have whatever speck or plank they want. So I know you are supposed to help him, but you must deal with yours first. So the application is not, oh no, don't worry about other people's sin. It's like, no, do help others with their sin, but make sure you've got your own out first. That's the, right? So that's all, but don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. Then he says, sounds like the, almost the opposite. Do not give to dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls before pigs because otherwise they'll trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Which sounds like it's directly set against it. So don't judge for these reasons, but actually make sure that you judge carefully who you do or do not give, your, give this wisdom to or who do you do or do not, whatever the parable is ultimately about. And I think it's difficult to know for certain, but there's a, a deliberate juxtaposition of two apparently competing perspectives, isn't there? Like, don't judge, but make sure you don't give this to dogs or pigs. You think, well, if that isn't a bit judgy what is like you know so no I can't give this you're a pig or uh, he's a kind of a strange but again he's doing what wisdom literature often does which is to f put two apparent opposites next to each other and go think find wisdom do you answer a fool according to his folly or not do you is this a question of am I being judging of Jeremy if I say oh no no I've got a uh, I, he's got a speck in his eye or actually should I make sure no I, I need to don't I need to not give him anything because he's a pig and I don't want to give him what's holy sorry mate Easy, you're easy target sitting there in the front row with a big grin on your face. So that, but this is obviously the, the, the dynamic at work here. And you, again, it's wisdom teaching done at its best often will involve those deliberate, I mean, you might not like the word contradiction. It might sound too, oh, contradictions in the Bible. But whatever you call it, that sort of, I am saying both, you know, yes and no together. That's what Jesus is doing here, I think. It's also... Um, I've got a little cloud there saying counter-catechesis. I just, um, I was, I was again with, with Jeremy in his church last week, and I said I actually even prefer, as a noun, counter-catechesis gets a bit of an ooh, but as an adjective, counter-catechetical gets even better ooh. It's just a fantastic word, and any time I get to use the word counter-catechetical, I just feel like I need to drop it in. Um, but this is what Jesus is doing throughout the uh, chapter five. He's saying, you've heard that it was said, 
but I'm saying. You've heard it was said, but I'm saying. He is drawing on the things that they have been taught to believe and directly opposing them and counter-catechizing them. He's taking hold of their, the things they've been drilled on and correcting them. And in the event we did last week, I was talking about this, how important that is for apologetics today, how important it is for those of us who are pastors or preachers to think, what are the things that people in this culture, in and outside the church, are being catechized to believe, and how do I counter those things? And I use just the example, I put up the sort of the secular creed, you know, the sort of yard sign in this house, we believe that, you know, Black Lives Matter, love is love, kindness is everything, um, all women, you know, human rights are women's rights, all, the, all those things. I said, right, let's have a look at these. So what of those is true? And this, this, and this. What of those needs to be challenged? What behind that is? Those sorts of things. Or, you know, love means love, or you can, you know, whatever it is, follow your heart, those sorts of things. What are the things people now believe that we can identify? That's the thing you have heard it was said. You should follow your heart and let, no, don't let anyone tell you who you are. But I'm saying to you, you do realise, don't you, that the only way you know which bits of your heart to follow are because your culture's telling you so. You're not quite as free as you think. So let's talk about what living life in God. Or Donna Tartt does a beautiful thing in one of her novels where with a character at the end goes, people always tell you, follow your heart. I know that's what you're supposed to do. But the question I have is, but what if you happen to have a heart that can't be trusted? What do you do then? Um, it's, re- it's a really, really profound like, comment at the end of this sort of long, sprawling novel. But it's like, yeah, that, you have heard it was said, follow your heart. But I say to you, what if your heart can't be trusted? It's, Jesus is, I think we need to do the equivalent of this, and clearly we need to do Jesus' counter-catechesis, but we also need to do that kind of thing for every generation and keep asking, what are those things? If I had to make a list of ten, what are the things you have heard it was said simply by virtue of living in Britain in 2023? And how might they be responded to? So I wondered if you could do that as a, a little exercise. I've given a few suggestions, but if you had to write down a, 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 a maybe five on your table, just give it five minutes. You have heard it was said. Dot, 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 dot. What are, give some examples, and they will vary depending on where you live, how old you are, all those sorts of things. But just give it five minutes on that, okay? Okay. Any suggestions? Any um, any areas in need of counter-catechesis? YOLO. Where, where did that come from? Was that <laughs> us? <laughs> I don't, we have a very, very corporate culture at King's London. No one takes responsibility for shouting anything. We all blame everyone else. Yeah, you only live once. Okay, good. You have heard it was said, you only live once. But I say to you, you only live twice. Or live once, die twice. Or you know, that, or no, was it die twice, live once, live once, die twice, that kind of thing? And you think, oh, okay, that's, uh, you know, or, or you make sure you die while you're alive, there is no chance afterwards. Those sorts of, those kind of C.S. Lewis-y isms. Um, okay, others. I am who I say I am. I am who I say I am, Yeah. Yeah, very good, rather than I am who he says I am. Very good. You can't be fulfilled if you're not having sex. Yeah, yeah, you can't be fulfilled if you're not having sex. Very good. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself, yeah. Very good. Be kind. Be kind? How would you respond? (laughs) Say, you've heard it was said, be kind. And I'd say to you, yeah, pretty much. Who said that? I don't even know. Are we deflecting again? This has just disappeared into the Borg. It was you, was it? What, what, what did you mean? It's on t-shirts 
Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, as in, how would you respond to it? As well? oh, kindness is everything. You see? <laughs> kindness is everything. Yeah. Kindness is everything is the one that appears on the yard sign, which I think is a, a much stronger statement, which is... Um, the funny thing about be kind is how unkind most of the people who say it often are. But that sounds a bit cheap, but it is also true. Kindness is everything. It's like, no, I, that's now being elevated into a, you know, the, the highest of all virtues. And I think what it generally means is don't tell anyone that they're wrong. And that's not... Okay, is that good? Yeah, be true to yourself is another one, isn't it? Like, rather than be true... To, you've heard it was said, be true to yourself. I say to you, be true to your future self or be true to you know, your creator or whatever. But so there's lots of these and examples and, and not just for the sake of being pithy or having a t-shirt version, but like as in teaching through them all the time. And Jesus is just doing that and obviously often affirming much of it. So yes, you've heard it was said, do not murder. Good, you know, be kind, well done, pretty much. But I'm also saying this, so it's not necessarily to, to reject it. You don't, kindness is everything. You might say, or oh, be kind. You say, I go along with a lot of that. There's more that we need to include. So, but I just think as a model, it's really helpful to think through. And catechesis is always trying to counter something. Even the creed is, you know, is memorable, is catechizing people about a particular misunderstanding of the person of Christ, which is why it goes on, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, and doesn't say anything about Jesus' teaching or healing ministry. Because those weren't the things then people were disagreeing about. So he's understanding that dynamic in our culture and going, what, what are the things now these people believe that they might not have 10 years ago? Several of those sayings were not even in the, in the ether 10 years ago, and they are now. And they were, in 10 years' time, it'll be something else. So we have to keep moving our, our, our catechesis, our, our teaching. Um, so another thing to throw in, have you noticed the appearance of the evil eye in Matthew's gospel? This is, a, a, those of us who know Andy McCulloch will not be surprised. I've got this from him. You, you see a lot of the evil eye where he was in Turkey for years and just really help me. That's one something you just skim over. It actually appears twice. So you have the evil eye popping up in the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is the reason it's on, the, on this page. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? It's just, for those of us who kind of come across the evil eye as just a sort of symbol people put on doors or as superstitious thing, or, you know, bracelets, brooches, all kinds of, it pops up a lot, doesn't it? But quite prominently in a lot of other cultures, less so in Britain. It's just interesting that it is there. The idea of, yeah, it is, it is very possible to have an eye that is continually envious and looking at other people. And obviously the reason the evil eye as a totem exists is to try and deflect or protect yourself from other people peering over and envying your stuff and having an evil eye towards it. But Jesus also does it in the workers in the vineyard. So he says to the, the guys who come forward and the, the, the people who think they're entitled to more go away grumbling that they haven't had as much as the others. And Matthew 20 verse 15, or, or is your eye evil because I am generous? Is literally what he says, is your eye evil because I'm good? Obviously, I think most translations will say something like, or are you envious because, or do you begrudge my generosity? But literally he says, have you got the evil eye because I'm so generous? So it's just an interesting little, I don't know, throw it out there. It's all, I was going to say it's all free. It's not in any way. You're all paying customers. It's, just, it's not free at all. That's normally one of my go-tos when I'm throwing out something that might or might not be true. Um, and then just have a look at the spiritual practices. Again, we would know the Sermon on the Mount, very clearly giving, praying, fasting. But that, they are not even the first spiritual practices that get introduced. So actually a lot of Matthew 5 includes what you might call the spiritual habits of the church. Confession. If you're offering your gifts, 
confess your sin. You know, that, that sort of let's, let's confess sins to one another that you might be healed. Celibacy is better for you to, obviously, we're not, I imagine, taking it literally that you say so you're much better for you to chop your hand or throw it away. But the idea that, yeah, it's much better for you to go maimed into the next life than to sin in this one. And the practice of, in the attitude towards divorce and remarriage, towards sexual sin, towards lust, is saying, yeah, you need to practice confession, chastity, or even celibacy if needed. You practice silence, not speaking out. Don't resist the one who's evil. The practice of nonviolence as well. Don't answer like this. And then, and charity, giving to the poor. Secrecy, make sure you don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And fasting and prayer. And then the simplicity practiced through the, the passage in chapter 6 on not storing up treasures on earth. So how much is that? Nine? You know, so if you go through a... Um, Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline, those sorts of books on the spiritual disciplines, some of them get up to 12, 14 spiritual practices like that, but nine of them are in the Sermon on the Mount. I just think there's a lot, I don't know, that for me was news as I started studying it, I was like, wow, I've noticed the big three, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, but I hadn't realised how many others there are, which are admittedly not taught in the same form, but Jesus saying, these are the kinds of things you're going to need to abstain from a lot of things. And recently been reflecting on the significance of fasting in a sex-saturated generation. Just to throw this out, again, another one of those kind of just take it or leave it comments. But that actually what fasting, of course, does as much as anything else is it teaches us to say no to things that we really, really want. And if, if we, as at least in the church culture, I'm part of, we, you know, fasting is something we would, is much more occasional Whereas it wasn't in my home, I was brought up by these two, these two, you know, older gentlemen and women sitting over here. But they would do, they, this was often true. Like they'd just disappear at mealtimes. So, sorry, this is my mum and dad. Just in case you're wondering why I was brought up by two monks who lived in the room. Anyway, my parents are here. Um, this is my mum and dad. But th- there was a lot of fasting in our home. Like they would, they were just often. You know, it wasn't made a big thing of. But obviously, you can't really raise children and not eat and not have them ask why. But I actually realize it's a much more regular spiritual habit than it is in my life, really, and than it is in the church calendar, that our church. It was something we would do for a particular period of the year. And it just made me think a bit like, you know, the reading the Bible and praying, I would, I would actually feel like I've not had a good day spiritually if I didn't read the Bible and pray at all in a day. And I imagine many of us would. That's how we've been raised. But fasting could go, I could go for 11 months and not fast and then do it a little bit in one month of the year and think that's quite normal. But actually, and I'm not trying to put anything on anybody, but it just challenged me to think, I think in a generation where we're asking single people, particularly to make sacrifices that most people who are married in this room don't make all the time, every day, to say no to something they really want, that culture is continually going, you must have this, as Howard mentioned earlier, to be a flourishing person. The discipline of fasting is really important because it's training wheels for you really want this thing and in fact your body will tell you in your stomach in about three hours time that you want this thing and you're saying no to it and it's training you how to renounce the ungodly passions of your flesh and keep them under your control and I just some of you go of course that's the reason we fast but to me that isn't something I'd really thought about and it's importance in the Sermon on the Mount I think is should give us pause at least so just to to think about. I know we've just had a lovely lunch <laughs> and uh, I'm not suggesting that people fast this evening either but I, I was challenged and perhaps just want to share that because I thought in our cultural moment that is as important as it has ever been because of the, the, how much the desires of the flesh drive sin in this generation. Sorry Steve. I wonder if uh, the sermon and your point of modern important practice given the way our culture is fasting is also 
a renouncing self-assertion, achievement, striving, proving, yeah. because you're weakened yeah. to a place where yes. you don't function as your best. Yes. And as we see, that's the best of life when you're poor in spirit. When you're yeah, born. yeah, very good. So, so in Jesus' time, it was wise to say, this isn't the Roman way. Yeah. And in our day, where be the best you can be. Yeah, very good. So, it literally makes you weaker. Yeah. And, so, so, and a lot of us find the, coming back to the technological challenges, we're hooked in. Mm. And fasting hooks you out of it. Yeah. And no, that's very good. And, and it's, yes, it, it's... So it's not just renunciation from things that I desire, it's actually renunciation from the best version of me, isn't it? It's like I become grumpier when I don't eat. For, certainly if the sugar do- drops too low, and we obviously have all the things we'd say to people pastorally about being sensible with it and so on, but... I d- down, yeah, yeah. Down, no. Just makes you go on very yeah, yeah. <laughs> For theirs is the kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> Amen, says Howard. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I know we probably some of us are like, we've practiced fasting, you know, for many decades and taught on it many times. And others of us might just, there might just be a challenge there for us. I, I want to challenge myself as well. I think that is, that's a, that's a part that has just not been part of my own spiritual practices. I've, I have, obviously, I've fasted and I've done it a bunch, but I don't feel I've built it in in the way, indispensable way that I think it's almost implied it is here. Jesus is like, well, obviously, these are the things you'll do. You'll pray, clearly, you'll give. Clearly. Imagine if anyone in your church was like, I never pray, I never give. But if people in your church said, oh, I never really fast, you might not think it was weird. I think it probably should be. That's, that's, the, that's the pitch. Um, and then final comment to make on, on this page, top right. Just the golden rule is, is, is fascinating. You often read out there, oh, you, the golden rule was widely known in the ancient world. And it was taught by other people. And, the, and it really wasn't. It was taught the other way round. So the golden rule, Jesus saying, you know, whatever you would have someone do to you, do that to your neighbor, for on this hang all the law and prophets. The positive version of the golden rule is Jesus' innovation. The negative version was well known. So Hillel, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That's the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Which if you're as big a cheese as Rabbi Hillel was, you can probably say things like that's the whole. But you can see that Jesus is clearly deliberately rebuking or, or, or maybe not rebuking, but correcting and upgrading what Hillel said. So Hillel and Shammai, the great rabbis of the previous generation, they were the, the huge, big beasts of rabbinic, early rabbinic Judaism. And Jesus is saying, no, they would say it negatively. If you don't want someone to do it to you, don't do it. But I'm saying to you, if you do want someone to do it to you, you should do it. And that's a much bigger ask. Because there's all sorts of things. If you walk down the street and say, don't, you don't want anyone to hit you, so don't hit them. You think, well, that doesn't cost me anything, really. Just means I'd have to not be a nasty person. Be kind. <laughs> but, but actually, if, if it's a positive thing, say, what I'd really like is for somebody else to offer me that or to do this or to help in this way, now do that. Yeah, that's a dramatically higher bar. So Jesus is saying the same thing. This is the law and prophets. And I, I don't want to overplay it, but I think the contrast intended here is you've heard that the law and prophets is basically avoiding doing bad stuff. I'm not just saying that. I'm saying make sure that you do the good stuff and that will cost you an awful lot more. So there's a lot in here. And uh, the, the, the top bit in the triangle, makarios nos through teleosity, is then illustrated. So if, if Pennington is right, that the Sermon on the Mount is saying, here's how to find flourishing through completion, wholeness, integratedness, I'm going to give you lots and lots of vivid images of what that looks like. They're not all literal, many of them are not, I don't think, literal instructions. 
I mean, some of them clearly are not literal instructions. Don't give your pearls to pigs. I'm like, who actually, is that a thing? I'm pearl, I'm like, hello, oh yeah, would you like a pearl? It's just obviously not meant, but then there's others where you'd say, yeah, chop your eye out, or you'd go, yeah, that's clearly overstated for, for effect. And there are others as well, you know, give the person an extra coat, or go the extra mile. It's not necessarily all literally, you must do all of these things every time they happen. But he's saying, I want to vividly get your imagination to understand the kind of thing I'm calling you to, but flourishing looks like wholeness. And of course, the completeness, the wholeness, the teleosity is a big part of the spiritual practices bit. Don't let your public perception be out of step with the private reality. Don't do these things for the benefit of the watching audience. Do them for your father who is in heaven and he will reward you. And that's where we're going to go next, but we'll probably have a break before we do that. Um, the after lunch session is always very short for that for you know, because reasons. Um, and also we haven't been fasting, so we're all feeling a little bit slower. Um, any, any questions on anything on, on the triangle? Yeah. I'm curious to know how you would... What would I know you have, I think you have preached through the Sermon on the Mount. I'm curious to know if, having done this study, particularly seeing the chiasm and the thematic thing, how you would break up the Sermon on the Mount now if you were preaching through it at a time wasn't... Okay, good. So how would you break up the Sermon on the Mount if you're preaching through the whole thing? I actually haven't done it. I've preached through the spiritual practices, which we actually just a few months ago, which I did using this, this structure. Um, I mean, generally, our, our practice as a church has been that we don't preach on anything for more than a term. So we have like 12 weeks as our max, because we've, but that's more a comment really. Oh, and if we had a long book to do, we'd just do it on more than one series. Because people begin to zone out our group cycles go that way so it, it works for us but so i would probably do but i think this you could do, you could do a 12 week um, you know series on the sermon on the mount and i think some of them you would obviously allocate more time to than others you i think you do the, off the top of my head you do the beatitudes sort and light you might do two weeks on the the you've heard and i say some of them about the more obvious morality some of them about them, you know, the, the, you know, don't hate, don't last, and then some about the more the non-violence retaliation that that bit. So that would take you up to four. Then I think you probably have, you might do a week on prayer and fasting. You might do a week on giving and money, and following through into some of the chapter seven stuff. You'd probably do something on anxiety. So then you'd be about seven or eight weeks through by the end of chapter six, and then you just the last you probably do something on the judgment thing up to verse six, something on the golden rule. And then something on the two ways and something on the two builders. So that kind of thing. I mean, but that's just because we would generally do things that length. I've never preached through the whole of Matthew. Um, I'd like to, but I think, I don't know, that might be years in the making. So we'll see. Steve. I'm wondering, Stuart, I can't see two clothes. Where were the two, two paths, two trees, two builders, but two clothes? I mean, I can see that it comes in, in sheep's clothing, but I Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. Are there two? Well, as it, what, wolf comes to you and... Oh, I see what you mean. Before, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. No, you're right. There isn't a... Say, there's no... It's... Yeah. Wolves dressed as wolves and wolves dressed as sheep. But yeah, there's no sheep dressed as sheep. I agree. No. But I, I think it's another metaphor for the two ways. Effectively, one of them is, I think, is implied. Be, what, run away from these guys, not those guys. But no, you're right. There's not two of them. So that's misleading. Johnny. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Yes, how do you, how do you know where the hyperbole is if that's what you think he's doing? Um, I mean, I, I think, for me, I think you would err on the side. You, you, we're always more likely to go, oh, he didn't really mean that, than we are to take it too seriously. So I would always rather err on the side interpretively of saying, let's assume he does mean it, but then let's see if there are good reasons to think that in that particular case, this is exaggerated for effect. The pearls before swine is one, because I just don't think that's anyone actually does that. I think it's clearly a figure of speech. The chopping your hand off thing is obviously is not just because none of the, you don't see any evidence of people doing it in the disciples, but then no one in, in the early church, or with one or two strange occasions, obviously there's a hint of it in Oregon's self-castration with flint knives, and I was it just oh gosh, it just makes you wince. But those sorts of people, other than but other than a couple of very very strange characters, that has just not been something the church ever seemed to practice. So you can be pretty confident that wasn't. Whereas the church do not just there, but of course in this, there's several other texts in the New Testament where Jesus makes the same point. And actually, on the Luke text in Luke 16 says it even stronger. Luke 18, Luke 16. Luke 16, says it even stronger than that about divorce and remarriage. So I think we're probably on safe ground in saying this is not just exaggeration. This is, so I would rather assume he meant, he meant follow it through in this way, but on a number of occasions there's a more cartoonish reading. And in a way, if the heart behind it is caught, it almost doesn't matter whether that particular application is hyperbolic at times. Because if someone is genuinely as offended by lusting as Jesus implies, they won't need to be told to chuck their eye out. It'll have its effect anyway. If someone is genuinely that committed to serving the poor, that they would give their clothes, even if they only had one, or they'd give it to someone who didn't have one, then whether they literally do or not almost doesn't matter because their heart has been so changed by what Jesus is saying. So I wouldn't worry too much about unbundling which is which. Okay, we're going to pause there. Sorry, I keep doing this to you. I, I apologise. We'll talk in the break. Um, we are going to, we're going to pause because I think our timeline says we're going to break until half past? Yeah? Okay, so we'll be back at half past.